Good morning. We're so glad you're here at Christ Church. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you have uh, arrived at what I think is one of my most favorite places to be, and that's here at Christ Church. Um, it's a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful place to call home. Uh, it's a wonderful place to find friends and to grow in your faith. And so for those of you who have arrived, for those of you on live stream, uh, I just want to say good morning, welcome, glad you're here. Uh, I probably have the hardest passage of Proverbs that they gave us out of the six weeks to talk about what God hates. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a, a good time diving through the seven things that uh, Proverbs lists for us. Uh, before we do that, though, I, I just want to say, I don't know if you know this or not, but we have a team of pastors who preach here at Christ Church, uh, close to a dozen of them, actually. And as I was preparing these last few weeks, I can't tell you how many of them sent me a message, texted me, uh, hey, I'm praying for you. And uh, I think it's important for you to know as a church that we have a team of people who are doing this together and they're looking at God's scriptures together and they're praying for each other. And I have felt that all week. And so it's just a, such a delight to be a part of that team and then be invited uh, up here to, to preach this morning. Also, I really enjoy it when people actually talk to me w during the service. And I don't know if you grew up in a church where they say amen, but we're in Proverbs, so I want you to say tweet that. <laughs> so if you hear something good, elbow your friend, your neighbor, your spouse, and say tweet that. Uh, it's okay with me. Hey, there is no other passage in scripture um, that I know of that, that speaks so directly to God's heart than this one. Um, I think sometimes when we look at scripture, we find ourselves uh, trying to discover the heart of God in a passage because it's not as obvious. But man, is this obvious. This is very, very direct to God's people. And it's couched within a context of Proverbs about warnings. So it's like this big light is going off for the, those who are reading the scriptures saying, hey, pay attention to this. Uh, we want you to be aware of this because this has great implications for your life. Uh, and so we're gonna dive into the heart of God this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, a few things, though, uh, I, I hate a lot of stuff. Uh, for example, I hate clutter. And I don't know if you hate clutter, but I love organization. And anytime the top drawer in my dresser gets cluttered, or my garage gets cluttered, or my shed gets cluttered, or my car gets cluttered, I, I go nuts and I, I wanna get it cleaned up because I just love organization. I also hate the Steelers. And I know the Campfields, I think, are watching from Pittsburgh today, so I just gotta let them know I hate Pittsburgh, and I hate the Steelers. And the only reason I do this is because I love the Ravens, and this is because I grew up in Maryland and just grew up loving those Baltimore Ravens. You know, I hate sauerkraut. Anybody hate sauerkraut? Okay, some of you love sauerkraut. I hate sauerkraut, and I hate sauerkraut because I just love a good brat with ketchup. Yeah, all right! Uh, you know what else? Uh, I, I hate the heat in the summer, and I hate the cold in the winter, and I cannot figure myself out. Uh, I hate it when paint chips fall off the floor, or fall off the wall on the floor after I'm done painting. I don't know what I'm doing wrong when I paint that causes paint to fall off the wall, but when you paint, and you put hours in it, and then the paint falls, I hate that. And I hate an old cup of coffee because a new cup of coffee tastes so good. So if you get thirsty, there's some back there in the corner. I guess I could say I hate a lot of things. You know, in, in fact, I pretty much hate anything that keeps me from finding pleasure. I hate anything that keeps me from having fun and enjoyment in my life. I hate doing anything that keeps me from doing things for me, if I'm honest. And most of these hates are probably because I just love myself way too much. <laughs> my guess is that we're not all different, though. I mean, we all hate long lines, right? 
We, uh, we all hate traffic. Uh, we all hate it when the Cubs lose. Uh, we hate it when the bathrooms are closed and we have to go. Uh, we hate sitting too close to someone on an airplane, especially when they smell bad. And, and let's face it, we hate anything that would inconvenience us. Anything that would get in our way of having a good day or being able to enjoy what our plans are, are, are in front of us, we, we just hate it. An honest personal reflection of ourselves would certainly show this. And while I may hate almond chocolate bars because I love plain ones, it has very little significance in my life. There are other things I hate that I could certainly add to this list. I mean, I hate the innocent accused. I hate it when the innocent are injured. I hate starvation, uh, when people go without food. I hate that kids are shot in our streets of our city. I hate it when we have division in our community, especially in our church because of the color of our skin. I mean, my guess is that we probably all hate some of these similar things, and mostly because we see them as an injustice to the world that we're all aiming for. I mean, there's a better world for everyone where we're all created equal and we can all believe and do what we want so long as it doesn't hurt anyone or more importantly hurt me. I mean, that's what everyone seems to be looking for. And so we lean towards hating anything that fights against it. We're in this series on Proverbs and uh, we're asking God for wisdom. And uh, the last few weeks we've talked about this. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the capacity to see things the way they really are to understand how they work, and to know how to do and respond to circumstances when those things happen. We wanna be able to have the competency to look at the world and see it in its truest form, and then have the ability to respond to it in appropriate way. Now this passage brings about a word that is a hot word in our culture, and that word is hate. There's an intensity behind the word. Uh, When you watch the news and the word crime comes on, uh, there's probably a certain amount of emotion that rises in you when you see a crime that maybe you're not pleased with or maybe that bothers you. Um, But as soon as the news reporter says hate crime, the intensity of your emotions and response to that crime go up. Am I right? I mean, we all know and feel that crime is bad, but the word hate is so much more powerful And this is as a parent, why when my kids look at each other when they're mad and the only thing they can conjure up is I hate you. Now granted, my kids don't say that a lot. But when they do, I rise up as a parent. I say, you can't say that. They have no context for the word. They're just communicating frustration towards their siblings. But me as a parent, I have so many more years of experience and intensity of connection to that word. You don't use that word in my house. No, 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 no. And so I rise up and I say, hey, you can't use that word. And then add the word God to any conversation with the word hate and complexity goes even higher. Does a loving God actually hate? I mean, if so, what does God hate? What wisdom is there knowing that God could actually hate and would it actually change the way we live our lives? I mean, you might be surprised to know that Proverbs actually teaches you to hate. It teaches us to hate as a community. In fact, to fear God is to hate evil, straight from the Proverbs. To grow in wisdom is to know what God hates, why he hates it, and how that implicates us. 
So I wanna dive into this list. Now this is a list, and any time that you preach through a list, you kinda have to work your way through to kinda figure out what in the world God's trying to say through the list. So we're gonna work our way through seven things that God hates, and we'll, we'll take each one in a moment, and then I'll share some uh, thoughts after we work through the list. But before we get to the list, I wanna just mention this. We have to remember that God has the capacity to hate. I think sometimes we just think that God is love, and that's it that there's no other side to God's heart. There's no other side to God's emotion. And the reality is it's very true. God does hate. He gets very disgusted, just like we do. And while he loves unconditionally, he is also repulsed unconditionally by certain things. It's within his character to do this. And the only reason I say this is because I think we need to be reminded that he actually does feel He's grieved by evil. He's grieved by wickedness. He's grieved by pain. As we grow in relationship with our spouse, this is something we're trying to figure out. Honey, did I hurt your feelings today? Uh, Sweetheart, what do I need to do to change the way I live so that I can better improve your experience living with me? I don't want to grieve my spouse. I don't want to grieve my friends. I don't want to grieve my community. So I work hard to figure out those people that are in my life so that I don't do that to them. It's the same way with God. He feels And so we need to be paying attention to this. These seven things in Proverbs bring a very intense emotion to God. And we should be mindful of that. So what's the first one? Well, the first one is this. God hates haughty eyes. Now, I I had to look up haughty. Not because I've not used the word before, but I wanted to make sure that I use the word haughty in the right way. What is haughty? Haughty is basically this like cynical, edgy, Uh, self-minded, condescending, important look in the eye. It's this look that just says, I'm better than you. Um, It's an arrogance that Jeremiah warned against that would drop Judah and and Jerusalem. It's an arrogant ambition that God said would cut people out of the community. It's the same willful pride and haughty look that would cause God to punish the Assyrian king in Isaiah. All through scripture, We see God fighting and hating pride. It's what actually levels the hierarchy between us and him. As we have pride rise up in our life, the hierarchy kind of begins to flatten out a little bit. No broken creature can stand before a holy God and any attempt at such thing will reap consequence. This is what Proverbs teaches What's the second thing? The second thing is that God hates a lying tongue. This is a little bit easier for me to figure out. Uh, Lying, though, is rooted in deception. It's the outward expression of a betrayer. Uh, Often people with a lying tongue will distort what is true in order to gain an advantage, and it will often hurt people and the community it's intended. It's a rearrangement of what is actually true to improve the arrangement that I desire. So if I'm the betrayer and I'm lying to you, I'm going to take what I think is true and twist it so that it makes me have an advantage. Lying is what started the fall. It shows a lack of respect for truth and the one who actually is the truth. In the New Testament, Judas was a great deceiver of his friends and of his Christ. Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts, are destroyed because of their deception with their generosity. All through scripture, God warns us not to follow false teachers and false prophets who distort the truth of the gospel. You see, lying crushes relationships. It destroys people's lives. 
It ruins communities and it deeply affects the heart of God. Number three, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Now, when I saw this one, I, I was thinking, well, obviously God doesn't like murder. Obviously God doesn't like it when people die, but what's the point of having the word innocent in there? What would drive God's heart to hate the shedding of innocent blood? You see, I think it hurts God a lot that that David would shed innocent blood. The scripture says that David was not allowed to build the temple. It was actually given to his son Solomon because his hands were covered in innocent blood. And I think the connection here is this. The the idea of innocent blood is is like a metaphor of purity. It's like a metaphor of someone who's spotless and stainless. This is our God. He's spotless, he's stainless. And when his spotless, stainless son was murdered, it grieved his heart. And so anytime that someone takes advantage of something that's innocent and pure and stainless, it's grieving the heart of God. Number four, God hates a heart that devises wicked schemes. Now if you look at the first three, the eyes, the tongue, and the hands, you now get to number four, which is basically the root of the other three. The eyes, the mouth, and the hands are all aimed towards evil, the fruits of a heart that has already turned towards wickedness. This heart condition stirs God to a place he cannot bear. For he loved the world so much that he would send his son to die for the hearts of the wicked. The wicked heart has a perversity to it. There's a, there's a piece in the heart that wants to create discord and it actually sits for a while and causes the mind to actually think about how to execute division. The wicked heart broke that cord, creating an utter depravity in humanity that could only be overcome by the perfect sacrifice who we all know is Jesus. And if you go back to Genesis six, you actually see God saying that his heart was grieved By what? The wickedness of the hearts in his people. It caused grief and pain in God's heart who is love and who hates anything which breaks down the relationship with his creation. Number five, God hates feet that are quick to rush to evil. Now this is a physical expression of where the heart has already gone. If my heart is aimed towards evil, my feet will quickly follow. It's a full body involvement in the complete opposite direction of the way God has called us to live. It's a joyful lifestyle aimed at destruction and discord. Think about that. There's actually a joy in someone's heart when it's aimed at discord because of the wickedness that sits within them. God hates feet of evil pursuers because like the others, it again destroys the image of him and it breaks the relationship of his creation. And then there's these last two, number six and seven. God hates a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Often these two are found together in scripture, mostly because they're connected to the judicial system. Many of the writers were were confronted and, and worked towards creating truth and justice within the judicial system. And so some of these proverbs you're gonna see are connected to that. You see, God is truth. Anything aimed in the opposite direction will create disgust in the heart of God. These actions break friendships. They break the trust in the public's justice system. And they eventually send our communities into confusion. Again, they're contrary to the heart of God. 
And so those are the seven things God's hate. And as I was looking at this list, I thought, well, if those are the things that God hates, why, did, why didn't the proverb just go, now these are the seven things God loves? Because it would certainly make me feel a whole lot better. You know, to know what he hates and what God loves can be great wisdom for our lives. If we love God and we're called to love like he does, then knowing what he loves and what he hates is really important. It's the same urging that Paul had. We just finished up a book um, of Ephesians and studying the six chapters in Ephesians. And in chapter five, Paul writes, you were once in darkness, but now you live as children of light in the Lord. And then he says, find out what pleases him. Find out what pleases God. Did you hear me? Find out. Later he says, be careful how you live. Not as unwise, but wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Do not be foolish, but please understand what the Lord's will is. So what's God's will? What does he love? What does he hate? Well, if you go back to the first one in the haughty eyes, God hates haughty eyes because he loves humility. And this is no better illustration for this than the humility of his son. When we jump to the book of Philippians, we find that Jesus himself bore our sin by dying on a cross. He did not consider the equality with God something to be grasped, which is complete opposite of what we tend to do sometimes with our pride. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death. You see, God hates because he loves, and in this case, he hates pride because he loves humility a great deal. If you look at the second one, it says that God hates a lying tongue. Well, he does this because he loves truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit was sent to lead us into what? All truth. When God looked down on his people and he saw that there was no truth within her, it displeased him. In John, we're told to worship God in spirit and in truth. The scriptures themselves are called the truth of God. Truth is what sets the prisoner free. Love rejoices her truth. And although the law that Moses gave was given, grace and truth came through Christ. God's character is bathed in integrity, sincerity, loyalty, exactness, truth. You see, God hates because he loves. And he hates this because he loves all that is true. If you look at the third one, the hands that shed innocent blood, he hates this because he loves justice. This is the foundation of his throne. Justice and righteousness are bathed in heaven. This is the experience that one day we will see. We will see exact justice and righteousness forever. In fact, he loves the acts of justice and righteousness so much that he would rather have that than a half-hearted worshipful sacrifice. I mean, these acts of evil that hurt the heart of our God, this is what he hates and he hates the hands that shed innocent blood because he loves hands that are committed to working for truth and justice. Number four, the heart that devises wicked seems, well, he hates that because he loves it when our hearts are devoted completely to him. Did you know that when a heart turns from wickedness to righteousness, there's a huge party in heaven? It says that the angels rejoice in the presence of God when a sinner repents. It is the best news of heaven. Angels are tweeting. (laughs) When hearts are committed to Christ because that is a priceless pearl to him, he loves it when people follow his ways. The feet that are quick to rush to evil, well, he hates that because he loves feet that are fitted with the gospel. If you read the New Testament, you find out that feet that bring the good news are beautiful. There's a beauty to that. And why is this? Because it's the 
word of God. It's his message, it's his heart. And any feet that are committed to that are gonna bring God great joy. And finally, he hates a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community because he loves a people committed to each other and to him. And man, do you know that God is pleased when us together as a community are committed to each other? When we're for each other, in the thick and the thin, when we fail, when we fall, and we're still committed to each other, that pleases our Father's heart. All through scripture, we read the story of God and his people. Jeremiah, God says that they will be my people and I will be their God. It's this wonderful connection and relationship. It's about having a relationship with his creation and this is what he loves. And when we're committed to speaking truth and living together in unity, it's a blessing. That's why the psalmist writes, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. This is what brings great pleasure to our God. So God hates a false witness and he hates a person stirring up trouble because he loves seeing a people reflect his love by loving one another. And so that's the list. That's what he hates, that's what he loves. Anybody ever been to Indiana Lakeshore? Uh, north side of Indiana on the south end of the, of the beach of the Lake Michigan. It's one of my favorite places to go. Uh, my family and I go there a lot. Uh, it's partly one of my favorites because it's free. Um, but beyond the fact that it's free, it, it's a wonderful escape. It's like a mini vacation. And you can get there in about an hour to an hour and a half, and you can spend all day there and make it back all in one day. And it feels like a little mini vacation. This is a photograph I took one day while we were there, and um, it's such a beautiful place. One of the major draws of visiting this lake shore, for me, is to sit on the shoreline, look out across Lake Michigan, and just imagine the strength and the power and the excitement of the lake itself. I mean, there's a mystery to the water that makes people actually wanna be near it or even better, on it. And if you own a boat, you just wanna be on the water. And this is what's so attractive about the lake. It's the same about the ocean. I grew up in Maryland and we would frequently visit Ocean City, Maryland. And every time we would go there, I would just remember sitting on the beach and just watching these massive waves come in and looking out over this deep, deep, vast ocean and just thinking and reminiscing about the power and I think as a child, I remember wanting to go out into the waves and ride on the waves. And then there was this moment where I would get just slightly afraid <laughs> and I would run back in, right? When I was a little kid, like really, really little, I would stand on the shoreline and you probably did this too. And I would wait for the waves to crash and come up to my feet and then I would back up. And then I would chase it back. And then I would back up. And I would do this for hours. As I got older, I would you know, obviously go out to the waves and ride the waves. But whether you're at the ocean or you're at Lake Michigan, one of the things that you find yourself doing is that, that there's this like hidden line of fear in the water. When I'm at Lake Michigan, sometimes I, I get this desire to just go for a swim. So I go out and I start going and I just keep going and eventually something in my brain says, turn around. <laughs> Mostly because of the riptide, but also because what happens if I hurt a leg or pull a muscle and suddenly I'm drowning in Lake Michigan? That'd probably not be good. And so I turn around and I come back. You see, there's this fear. There's this mystery to the water. And even in the midst of the mystery and the fear, I still enjoy going there. You see, the sea, the water, it was seen much differently in scripture. If you've ever read the book, Evil and the Justice of God, you'll know what N.T. Wright talks about when he explains that the sea, the water, was not a source of enjoyment. 
It was not metaphorically a place where they found joy. It was a, a visual for God's power and his judgment. I mean, when the seas rose, the judgment of God came, and we see this very clearly in Genesis. We also see this in Exodus, when his people are fleeing Egypt, and what does God do with the sea to bring judgment on Egypt? He collapses the Red Sea. When you read the Psalms, you see all the worshipers worshiping God who have power over the sea, who has power over the floodwaters, a God who is mightier than the thunder of the great waters and who rules over the surging of the sea when its waves rise up. I don't think that people went to the sea to find enjoyment. I mean, at least that's what it kind of looks like. I'm sure they did, but the reality is, is that when they saw the sea, it was a picture of God's judgment. It was a reminder of the strength and power of God. And in the New Testament, what does Jesus do? He calms the storm and he walks on water. And compare that with Peter, who had no strength of his own, and as he began to do what Jesus did, he began to fall. He had no power over the surging of the sea. Lady Wisdom in this passage is warning us to be mindful of these things God hates because of the destruction and judgment that come with them. We may, all sit, we may all enjoy sitting on the shoreline of sin. We may enjoy spending a little time on the edge of sin. We might even build a sand castle and see how long it takes for the waters to destroy our little sin. And we do this knowing very well that in some capacity, the sin we're doing could potentially hurt us. We know very well the strength of its waters. All too often though, we forget really its strength. Its ability to destroy and the pain it causes God and so we sit on its shoreline for little R&R. The only way for us to live and pursue integrity is to hate what God hates and so we can love the way God loves. You see, God hates because he loves and he hates sin because he loves us. And so the challenge for us, really, is to go, okay, God, where in my life do I need to hate more? And where in my life do I need to love more? Uh, I'm a board game fan. If you come to my house, I have this huge closet filled with board games. Um, And I'm a parent, and I had kids, and mostly I had kids so I could beat them in board games. (laughs) Uh, One of my favorites uh, is this game over here. Are there any Jenga fans in here? I love Jenga. When I play Jenga, I go Jenga, 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 Jenga. Um, anyway, so this is Jenga. The idea of this game uh, is, if you've never played it, is to take a board uh, out from the tower and place it on top. And then you go around in a circle and everyone does the same thing and you keep going until the tower gets bigger and eventually someone pulls a block and the tower falls. Are you with me so far? The goal is to see how high you can get the tower. And when you look at the tower initially, you see it's in perfect symmetry. Uh, it's, it's wonderfully constructed. All the blocks fit together. Um, it's built the way it was intended to be built. This is Jenga. You know, when God designed us, our lives, he said it was good, perfect. No blemish, no hole, no stain, nothing wrong with it. It was all good. And then somewhere along the line, deception played itself in. These things that God hates, it kind of played out into our lives. It was this ultimate deception. Hello? We do not need to live the way we're designed, but we can actually live bigger and better lives. This is the deception. There's something in us that thinks if we just take a little bit control of our own lives, we can actually 
get bigger and better. And if we keep doing this for a while, we may actually find success. Wow, I did one whole layer in front of a lot of people, that's pretty good. And it's not shaking. Now you may find as you begin to build your own life, it gets a little wobbly, but hey, it's still standing. Like playing along the seashore, we make decisions for ourselves, fully aware of its consequences. We know full well if we keep pulling more pieces of wood, eventually that tower will fall. But we still do it with some hope that it'll turn out okay. For example, um, we take humility. And every once in a while, a moment of pride shows up and we use it for our advantage. I mean, we could be humble, we could choose to be humble, but we choose not to be. And then every once in a while, we have a moment to deceive our friends and um, maybe make things out better than they are. We, we take what is true and we twist it and so we say a little white lie. Uh, but then we come to a moment of truth. Then we come to the place where I think we go, well, should we stand up for what is true or should we not? And then sometimes we decide not to do that. So we take that and we put there and we're still building a great life. <laughs> it's still working. Then we come to a moment where we're devoted to God most of the time. Most of the time in our life we have integrity, but then there's those moments where we decide that no one's watching. And so we take integrity and we start to pull and we start to build. No one saw that moment of distrust. Maybe our feet are pretty good at walking the path of righteousness. Maybe we've got our lives perfectly constructed so that we're doing the walk and talking the talk, but every once in a while, there's that little moment where our feet decide that we're not gonna go the way God calls us to go. We're gonna go where? Our own way. And so we take out another piece and we keep building. And then it comes to you know, the community that you're in, the relationships that you're in. You know, instead of walking paths of light, we choose paths that in hopes will bless ourselves rather than God or those around us. And if our lives are not big enough yet, right, we'll lie and we'll stir up conflict. We'll take advantage of people in our jobs, we'll take, a people, we'll take advantage of people in our families, we'll do whatever it takes so that we can build as quickly, as fast as we can. And eventually what happens is, this thing gets so wobbly that your life becomes that. I mean, what we need is wisdom. I mean, what we really need is to figure out how to respond to the way the world really is in a godly way. What we need is wisdom to figure out what to do in the space between circumstance and response. Viktor Frankl, Holocaust survivor, said this, between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I mean, can you imagine uh, if you could see the evil in your life when it creeped up on the shores? Could, could you imagine if you had the ability to see the sin in your life and actually have the ability to respond to it in a way that honors God and builds up the people around you? I mean, imagine if we stood all up together against the evils of our world because of our deep love for God and our deep love for his creation. Imagine if we no longer looked on this world from a distance, but we actually were willing to get our hands dirty to take light into dark places. 
I mean, imagine if we had the ability to know how to respond to the situations around us, and in the space of choice, we could choose wisely. I mean, let's face it, we fight against anything that keeps us from anything that we love. And whether it's something as insignificant as the Ravens and Steelers, or something that shatters entire nations like the refugee crisis or poverty, our fight typically only shows up when we love enough to hate injustice and unrighteousness. And I would say if our, if our fight against evil in our community, in our church, in our families, in our own personal lives is minimal, if our fight is minimal, then maybe that might be an indication of just how much we actually love. You see, to hate these evils in this proverb, we have to deeply love the things that are good and true that evil seeks to destroy. To live with integrity, we need wisdom. And how do we get wisdom? Well, part of it is to just hear what wisdom has to say. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. By me, kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. By me, princes govern and all nobles who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than gold. What I yield surpasses the choices of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing wealth on those who love me and making their treasures full. May we hate and love the way God hates and loves. Let's pray. God, it's our heart's desire that we would know you more. Uh, Lord, it's our heart's desire that you would continue to grow all of us, uh, to teach us how to live, God, to teach us how to love, and Lord, even teach us how to hate. God, would you give us the wisdom to know which one of those to do and when? Uh, God, would you um, make us a people who are in tune with you and in tune with your heart? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.